Hi, 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 and hey, hey, and welcome to Talk More Talk, a solo Beatles video cast. This is a live broadcast right now from the Fest for Beatles fans, and this program is all about the solo careers of the Beatles. I'm Ken Michaels, one of the regular co-hosts, being joined by Kid O'Toole and Tom Hunyadi. And we have a very special guest to bring on for you. He was the last lead guitarist in Wings. He was on the big hits of Good Night Tonight. And the number one song in America coming up, Live at Glasgow. On the Back to the Egg album, he was also part of the uh, UK tour of Wings at the end of 1979. Let's have a nice fest welcome for Lawrence Juber. Thank you very much. Thank you. Let's, um, let's start with, for, for those fans who are unaware of how it all started for you, how you came to join Wings. Well, I was a studio musician in London. And uh, in the course of doing that work, I was playing lead guitar on a TV show with David Essex, 19, September 1977. And Denny Lane was a guest on the show. And we did Go Now his signature tune from the Moody Blues. And he liked my playing. And apparently a couple of days later, he called up the musical director and said, is he versatile? So, um, but I didn't hear anything. Uh, it wasn't an instant thing. I mean, that was September. I ran into them, ran into Denny, Paul and Linda at Air Studios uh, a couple of months later where they were mixing the, the sound for the um, Oriental Nightfish um, animation. And I was early for a session. They were running late. And so they invited me in and I got introduced. And um, about, oh, it wasn't until April of 78 that I actually got the call. I was doing a session uh, at Abbey Road Studio 2, the most iconic yes. studio in London. And I, there was a phone call for me, which was really unusual. You know, of course, this is you know, way before cell phones or any of that. And and I finally, I'd never been up the staircase. Um, and I went up the stairs and went into the control room. And I said, ooh, quadrant faders, you know, the, the old school way of doing things. And um, I took the phone call and it was Paul's office saying, Denny wants to know if you can come and jam on Monday. And oh, by the way, Paul and Linda will be there. Which panicked me a little bit because I didn't know any wings to <laughs> so I borrowed some LPs from my brother, realized that over the weekend, I wasn't going to really be able to kind of figure out what we were going to play. So I decided I would wing it. 
<laughs> excuse the expression and uh we jammed on some reggae grooves and some chuck berry tunes and then they offered me the gig well paul said what are you doing for the next few years and like my brain kind of like in that a nanosecond of okay i'm giving up this studio career that i've spent the last 10 years developing and i said well i guess i'm playing with you <laughs> so um you know, I couldn't turn down the opportunity to play with Paul. So obviously, and, and there it was. Can you give us a, a quick rundown, if you could, of just a few of the recordings that you made as a studio musician prior to Wings? Well, I, I played on the soundtrack of The Spy Who Loved Me. The first thing you hear in the movie score is, is a solo Stratocaster playing the, the Bond tune, and that was me. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't know it for many years, but when we were recording, we did both the soundtrack and the um, the um, the album at the same time. And when we were recording, I had played on a, a version of Nobody Does It Better that was just Marvin Hamish on the piano and a string orchestra and a sax player. And on that session, they said, oh, we need some guitar licks on this. And they ran, you know, about a couple of minutes worth of a track by me and I played some licks and then forgot all about it. And then it was pointed out to me not that long ago that that was actually the Carly Simon record. Wow. So I didn't know I was on it. Um, <laughs> I played on Tales of Mystery and Imagination for Alan Parsons Project, which as far as I knew was a Tuesday night session at Abbey Road with a string orchestra, some mandolins and Francis Monkman from Curved Air on harpsichord. And I forgot all about it. And they never put my name on the credits of the LP. So it wasn't until 25 years later, I was reading a magazine and Alan Parsons said, yeah, we had Lawrence Tuber play guitar. We did. <laughs> um, so that was, you know, that was kind of an interesting thing, but that was all in a day's work. You know, I was doing three, four sessions a day at that time. Yeah. Um, my first big session was for a Cleo Lane album that George Martin was producing. So the first real record producer I worked with was George Martin and I was pretty green at the time but you know it was an education um a lot of uh, stuff in england that never really made it kind of across the atlantic but i did work um, on an interesting record that cat uh, stevens produced for his brother um and i also worked on a, a record that um jerry rafferty produced for his brother so you know there's kind of like you know kind of one step removed a lot of things but it was you know it was a busy time for me i did a lot of tv stuff i did a lot of uh, jingle sessions you know eight o'clock in the morning you go and show up at olympic to do a jingle session and then have to be at trident by 10 o'clock you know schlepping four guitars and a, an amplifier and trying to find somewhere to park and make it in time for the downbeat i mean it was uh, it was an interesting time and i'm glad i was in my 20s when i did it because I'd, ne <laughs> I'd never do that now so you proved to be very versatile. Uh, well, that was, I, I set out to be versatile because I, I fell in love with music, you know, beyond the Beatles. I mean, the Beatles were obviously, a, you know, I started playing guitar in November of 63. I mean, it was right after the Royal Command performance. Mm. Uh, and I, but I, so the Beatles and the Stones and, you know, all the English bands. And of course, on the electric guitar side, Clapton and Hendrix and Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck and you know those were big influences but I was also a big fan of folk guitar you know because 1963 was also you know Bob Dylan, Joan Baez and, and 
a little later, Paul Simon. And I loved the self-sufficiency of the folk guitar players, that they could just sit there with an acoustic guitar and nothing else. Mm. And But when I was 14, a, a friend of mine and I had a, a duo, and we would open at a local folk club for Al Stewart and Martin Carty, people like that. And then, you know, 30 years later, I end up producing Al Stewart's records. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Let's, let's fast forward to Paul. If I remember correctly, you told me many years ago, the first session you were on was for same time next year? May 5th, 1978. And I know that because I just looked it up because <laughs> my social media manager wants to post something about that song. Um, yeah, that was, uh, and that was you know, a demo that he did for, a mo for the movie of the same name. Right. He didn't actually get the score. I think Marvin Hamlish ironically got it. Mm -hmm. But I had never worked on a demo that was so well-produced. Right. I mean, they put a 60-piece string orchestra on it. Um, and that was just, you know, that was kind of my introduction to being in the studio with Paul. But that went very smoothly. Hmm. That actually, that record, ended, that song ended up being a bonus track on the Put It There Right. CD single and the 12-inch single. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Back to the Egg and the initial sessions. And um, we all know Chris Thomas co-produced it with Paul. And Chris goes all the way back to the days at EMI, the White Album, working on Helter Skelter and songs like that. Was the plan all along for this to be a very hard-edged punk album? Because we all know Spin It On is punkish and mm -hmm. old Siamser to you certain songs like that really have an edge to it or was the album really without a direction you know because it turned out to be so varied well I think there was certainly the intention of it being a harder edged record at least to begin with and I think that you know Chris was brought in because Paul had a new record deal, for one thing. He'd signed with Columbia Records. And, and of course, Chris, not only having had the, the, um, the experience of being George Martin's assistant, but also had you know, worked on Dark Side of the Moon and Procol Harum and Roxy Music. And, and he was bringing a different sensibility mm -hmm. to the project. And the, the first batch of songs were indeed you know, more rock and roll. And I think the first thing we recorded was To You. Certainly in that first batch, it was To You, Spin It On, Old Siam, Sir. Um, and I think that as the album progressed, the kind of the, the softer songs kind of worked in there. But it was still, I mean, Rockestra, you know, was we started in July of 78 up in Scotland. And then in... Um, in September, we went to Lim Castle, which is a medieval castle. And of course, you know, right. when you're in a medieval castle, you have to make a rock and roll record. It's kind of, <laughs> kind of rock and roll. You know. Yeah. Um, and then we moved over to Abbey Road. And the first thing we did at Abbey Road on October 3rd of 78 was the, um, was the rockestra session. And, you know, having John Bonham and Kenny Jones, as well as Steve Holly and the guitar section of Pete Townsend, Dave Gilmore, Denny Lane, Hank Marvin, and me, and Jimmy Page's amplifier. Mm -hmm. yeah. He never showed up, but his amplifier showed up for a while, and then it went away. That must have blown you away, just having all those oh, yeah. musicians I mean, in one forget room. It. I mean, the, just from my perspective as a fan, you know, I, I, here I am playing with people that, that I idolize, you know, that I mm. grew up listening to. Um, but 
it was, you know, I, it was my gig. So I, there I was. So, you know, it was, it was very exciting. It was challenging, but, uh, but it was, you know, at the end of the day, it was all in the day's work, you know, as a professional musician, which was always my ambition was to be a professional guitar player, you know, and to make music as a guitar player. Right. Okay, we're going to rotate here with questions, oh, yeah. and I think Kit, you're next. Um, well, before getting into some specific tracks and back to the egg, I've told these guys I've been waiting to ask you this question for a long time. So, uh, so I'm I'm very excited about this. So, uh, about uh, Good Night Tonight, uh, which of course recorded around the same time, that flamenco guitar solo. I, I just love, and I just wanted to ask you for so long, was that your idea? Was that, how did that come about? Uh, well, thank you for mm -hmm. that. Um, we were working on the track and we were in the basement of Paul's office mm -hmm. in Soho Square, one Soho Square, London. Um, and it wasn't really a, a real studio. You know, we were in there to mix. But somehow we ended up recording. We did uh, daytime, nighttime suffering, mm -hmm. and then we moved on to working on Good Night Tonight. And there was a gap. Mm -hmm. And it's well, what should we put there? Well, how about an acoustic guitar solo? Mm -hmm. You know, just to change the texture. And I said, well, I don't have an acoustic guitar with me, and so I borrowed Denny's. He had an Ovation Adamas, mm -hmm. and they ran the track by me, and I played something, and I said, well, you know that kind of thing and they said exactly that kind of thing i mean that was one wow. take wow yeah really? that just kind of yeah it just spilled out i was just in the musical moment my gosh yeah. did i mean it, i'm glad it was mind you because otherwise <laughs> it would have gone on for a long time <laughs> <laughs> i mean where, where did you learn to play that style what uh... oh you know it was when i was a teenager and i would go like there was a local band leader that would take me out on corporate gigs and weddings and stuff and you know, they would play like Spanish Eyes, you know, that song. Yeah, right? sure. And I do like these little Spanish fills in, in mm -hmm. there. And, and I'd listen to flamenco guitar, but mm -hmm. uh, I, my right hand was never that aggressive as a, mm -hmm. as a fingerstyle player. But, you know, playing with the pick and, and it just it's just kind of tossed, off, tossed it out. I mean, wow. which is the best kind of thing, really. Okay, that's it. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, drop mic. Yep, that's no, no, that that just absolutely was like the cherry on top for me for that song. So I've always wanted to ask you that. So, oh, that's that's wonderful. Oh, so uh, so back to uh, the sessions. Um, so what was the atmosphere like in in the studio? Was it was it a a collaborative kind of spirit? I mean, what what was it like? Like I've heard old Siam Sir, for example, was a kind of a collaborative, <clears throat> excuse me, kind of atmosphere. What what was it like? Well, the, it was definitely I mean, Paul was really encouraging us to to think of it as being a band mm -hmm. and not just his backup. Mm -hmm. um, with Old Siam, sir, in particular, we had been jamming on that song before we started recording the album. We had spent three weeks somewhere around the end of May um, of 78 up in Scotland, just getting to know each other and just kind of playing through some of the material. And part of that, the, the instrumental section in Old Siam, so it was actually based on a chord progression that Steve Holly was playing 
uh, I think Linda might have even been playing drums when we were jamming on it and, you know, oh. and Paul playing guitar. And it just, you know, there were certain things that just kind of emerged in the process. Mm -hmm. um, so there was certainly, there was collaboration. There was a lot of freedom mm -hmm. uh, when it came, for example, to the, the guitar solo one to you. Mm -hmm. um, that was, you know, I was kind of basically left to, you know, kind of my own devices, except that Paul and, and Chris Thomas had decided that they were going to run my guitar through it and even tied harmonize it. Mm -hmm. You might think of it as kind of a very, very primitive version of auto tune, mm. as far as it, you could change the pitch. So Paul was in the control room and didn't matter what note I played, he would just be manually changing the pitch of it mm -hmm. at the same time as you would hear what I was actually playing. And so I had no real idea as to what was going to come out. I just was going for something that was a little outside the box too, mm -hmm. I think, which was in keeping of the, the kind of feeling of, of wanting to make it not quite so conventional. Mm -hmm. And that was very much a kind of a synergistic thing. There. And then when with um, Spin It On, I was sitting in the control room, like with Paul right next to me, just eyeball to eyeball. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was really the moment that I really understood how he functioned as a producer and musical director in mm -hmm. terms of he brought stuff out of me that I didn't know I could do. Mm -hmm. you wow. know? And that was, I think, that was a great insight mm -hmm. for me was that it, it, does, it isn't just kind of pulling stuff out of your box of guitar licks, yeah. but it's really going into something deeper, a different dimension. Yeah. Um, so there was that kind of collaboration. Mm -hmm. And there was also, I mean, there was room to bring stuff in. There was room to bring songs in. Now, you know, we, we were there one day, Linda was, was off with James and Paul said, well, anybody got anything? Um, Danny, we'd already worked on Danny's uh, um, again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I've got this little instrumental kind of like a Chuck Berry, uh, Ch um, uh, sorry, um, uh, uh, Chet Atkins kind of style thing. And um, so Paul said, well, let's record it. So we did. There's a tune of mine called Maisie. Oh, yeah. And we just sat around in a circle with, you know, kind of Denny on harmonica, Paul on bass and Steve on drums and recorded it quite quickly. And, you know, it didn't make it to the album, but yeah. I've released it. You know, so. yeah. wow. but, but the cool thing is that was my first composition. And I have Paul McCartney playing bass on it. So. Not a not a bad not way a bad to start. <laughs> but but the thing that that I I, I and I'm and I'm sure many of us here love uh, about the album is its its diversity and Baby's Request is is one of my favorites and I love your your guitar uh, on that um, and I just wondered you know who your your influence was I I been trying to think of it was Wes Montgomery or or you know yeah Bonnie. Who, Kessel in particular. Oh, okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. I listen to Bonnie Kessel, Joe Pass, West Joe Pass, sure. Yeah, but I, you know, I go to Ronnie Scott's club and sit in the front row and watch Barney Kessel's fingers and Joe Pass. It, you know, wow. and then three o'clock in the morning, I go home after smoking through a whole pack of, of cigarettes and then practice. <laughs> you know, because um, you know, I get there at nine thirty, I could get in for two pounds with a student union card. So whenever the jazz guitar players were there, I would go. Um, but I think, you know, maybe channeling Barney Kessel for, for Baby's Request. But that okay. was, I mean, that was a demo that we were doing for the Mills Brothers. 
because Paul had mm -hmm. seen them in France when he was on holiday there. Wow. And he wanted to offer them this song. So we recorded it. And then apparently they, I think they wanted to be paid to record it or something weird. And he said, well, we'll just do it ourselves. But, uh, but a little kind of aside on that, there's a, a, a mini Moog solo on, on that. Yeah. And I thought that, you know, a trombone would be really cool. Yeah. And it just happened that day that the, in, in studio, um, I, I think it was in studio one, um, Don Lusher, who was the greatest trombone player in England, was, was there mm -hmm. doing the session. And couldn't we get him in and do it? Well, no, I think I'll do it myself on, on the most, <laughs> you know, which is that sense of self-sufficiency. You know? mm -hmm. But, you know, that went down pretty quickly also. I mean, there's, you know, we just were, again, you just set up and you, you play the song and at some point you get a take. Yeah. Know? Wow. I mean, that that's just amazing how it just seems like it came about fairly quickly and, and just flowed. Well, I think that, you know, it's when you have the right level of musicianship, which right. clearly was there, then if you know what the material is, you know, if you if you really you've got the chords down and you've got the, the character of it, then it, it kind of develops on its own. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a little it's interesting in the Get Back documentary because they're they're writing as, as well as they're arranging and you know, so it's it, the 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 arc, the creative arc, is a different one. Yeah, like that. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'm going to pass this on. Oh, thank you. Keep going yes. Thanks. Thanks again for being here, LJ. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the Back to Dag TV special, but before that, the the track did we meet somewhere here before? Do you have any knowledge how that got into the rock and roll high school film? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I think that, I mean, well, you know, MPL, Paul's company, is, I don't know if it still is, but at the time was, I think, the biggest independent music publisher okay. in the world. Right. And when you're a music publisher, the, you know, you have people whose job it is, is right. to try what, what they call syncs, mm. synch synchronization licenses, because that can be a very lucrative uh, use of a, of a recording right. you know you get something in a movie or a tv show and and um you know um it just it becomes a piece of business right. and so i imagine that's how that happened because right. it just it just feels so out of place in that film but. well yeah i discovered actually i didn't even know until i saw it on wikipedia that the same time next year is actually used as the end credit in an Anne margaret film right yeah, mm -hmm. yeah i had i didn't know <laughs> That's great. Um, so can we assume that the while you're recording the Back to the Egg, that's when the, the, the thought, uh, the idea came for the TV show as well, the TV special? Uh, I expect so. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that, you know, this is prior to MTV. Mm -hmm. But of course, you know, Paul had a history of doing promo right. videos. Yep. Mm -hmm. and, and I believe that the special, when it was broadcast, was sponsored by Coca-Cola. Um, so someone, someone made a deal, mm -hmm. you know, and, and not long before I joined the band, Paul's management had changed. There was a man named Brian Brawley who was managing, who had a background in, in movies. Mm. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, again, the business people were right. kind of, you know, looking for angles. He had a new record company with, with Columbia mm. and there was no plan for a U.S. tour. Right in to back up the album mm. i mean and we didn't even tour england until later on right. that year 
um, the main promotional thrust was me and Steve Holly going around Europe and, and going to New York and, you know, being the new wing, mm -hmm. uh, which was very exciting for us. Um, so we filmed, must have been somewhere around May. Right. That nice. we filmed, because right. the album was done. Okay. And then we went back to Lim Castle to right. film all that stuff, including the aircraft hangar and right. all that. Um, and uh, then, you know, the, the next thing I heard was it was being broadcast in the States, but I, I think that didn't even get broadcast until later in the year. Right. Too. Right. Uh, you know, I watched it again this morning and it seems like you guys are having a lot of fun with that, especially out in the field doing again and again, you know, you're doing your solo <laughs> and then it's behind you with the flowers. Yeah. And uh, I, I was just trying my best right. not to trip over weeds. <laughs> <laughs> right. It seemed like if you had allergies, that'd be somebody's worst nightmare in that field, yeah. you know. But uh, I mean, was a lot of that first takes or did you guys know what you were doing ahead of time? Oh, I, that we've just kind of got put in those situations. Okay. The first video we did was for Goodnight Tonight. Okay. And that was an interesting one because that was done at the Hammersmith Palais, mm. which is a big dance hall in um, West London that I used to go. I played there weekends with right. a man named Ken McIntosh had a big band. Okay. And that was one of my kind of like just out of college gigs. Mm. And it had the revolving stage. So right. at the end of the set, the stage would revolve and the relief band would come on. And so, <laughs> you know, you see it at the end of the video that you see the stage revolving and mm. I kind of waved right. to the camera. But that was fun because we got to jam mm. and, and we had the crew as our audience. Right. You know, and same thing happened when we were in the aircraft hangar right. doing Spin It On, you know, yeah. just those opportunities to play as a band for a small group of people, as right. opposed to, you know, the formality of a tour performance. Mm -hmm. Any of them stand out to you as, as favorites? In terms of the song? Yeah, of, those, of, the, the video. well, of the videos. Well, the spinning almost kind of fun. Right, yeah. You know, although like... we had this huge bank of lights behind us and we're wearing like fur-lined sheepskin. Yeah. Did you get to jacket. keep those? I did, and then I outgrew it. <laughs> But but the next but after the, the filming, I mean, I hung it up and it was literally dripping. It was, it was, it was so hot. Right. Yeah. That's funny. Um, a couple of tracks that didn't make the album songs like Cage, Robber's Ball, Boil Crisis, Cruising Ahead. Well, um, Boil Crisis was a demo. We never worked on that. OK, so it wasn't in contention. Mm -hmm. um, cruising Ahead, I'm I'm doubtful. Mm -hmm. about that one because i don't think it's me on that i don't remember that song right. at okay. all um and i know that comes up as a potential back to the egg outtake mm -hmm. it might have been jamming during the time we were back at Limcastle. okay um but it wasn't uh, it wasn't part of the album okay nor was rubber's ball right rubber's ball was when we went back to Limcastle. okay and we just had a day you know one of the setup days and I actually, that started life where I was at the studio, at the studio, in the, in the castle, and mm -hmm. I was just kind of noodling. And then Paul walked in, sat down at the drums, and we just started jamming, and they ran the tape, and then we built the track from that. Mm. I should really get songwriting. You should. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And um, that was, you know, the, and the other tune we did um, when... Um, we were in that because we had the rack mobile there while we mm. were doing the video was uh, Weep for Love, Dennis okay. song. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, what about Cage? Oh, Cage. Yes. Well, Cage was one that we did work on a lot. Okay. Um, I, the, I have a couple of memories of that. One was miking up Paul's Rolls Royce to, to 
get the sound of the horn, uh, which they ended up didn't work. So they used a mini moog to do that. Mm -hmm. And then when we were working on it at Abbey Road, uh, we wanted to do that kind of calliope section. Right. So we had bottles of whiskey. <laughs> and of course, you know, you blow across the top of the right. bottle and you, you get a pitch. So mm -hmm. in order to change the pitch, we had to drink the whiskey. Right. So we were all a little bit loopy by the right. time we got to <laughs> <Of course>. Nice. <laughs> um, I believe that summer, McCartney also records what becomes McCartney too. Right. Were you aware of this? And oh, yeah. Was there any thought in your mind going, okay, well, maybe our jobs are in jeopardy now? I didn't really think of it like that. Okay. You know, I mean, for me, being in the band was such a gift mm -hmm. that I really... It was like it wasn't, I, and I knew that you know there was no incarnation of Wings that lasted right. more than two, three years true, anyway. True. Yeah. So it was something that was going on. I knew that Paul had a multi-album deal with Columbia, okay. um, and you know when it once it was done, and we we started working on the repertoire for the tour, mm -hmm. you know, coming up right. became you know a Wings tune right. too. So, uh, but I think that, and from my perspective, there was the dichotomy between where Paul was going as a solo mm. artist and where the band was going, there was a divergence there because you just mm. have to compare the two versions of coming right. up. Right. That's true. And Denny was really wanted to get out and tour more than I think. probably. And, and Denny, and... Denny started doing solo yeah, gigs right. that summer. He mm. and Steve Holly were playing. I, you know, went to see them at gotcha. a couple of pub gigs, wow. yeah. <laughs> cool. but I was busy. You know, Paul had asked me to record, an album of um, stuff out of his music publishing catalog, which oh. became my standard time record. Okay. So I was busy yeah. during right. that summer kind of into pre-production for doing that. Gotcha. So when we were mixing that record, we would do like all night mixing sessions at air, and then I'd have to go you know, rehearse right. all day for, <laughs> you know, with wings. So yeah. it was an interesting period. Right. Yeah. Ken? Okay, I'm going to ask you a question that I've asked you a lot through the years, but it's kind of important for me to bring this out because every now and then I'll always hear people say Wings was just Paul's backup group, or they were a vehicle for him to tour. Um, how do you respond to that? And what distinction do you make between a Wings recording and a solo recording? Hmm. Well, I mean, in a sense, it was Paul's backup group because he was the boss. But we were encouraged to treat it as a band. And he gave us enough leeway that it felt like a band. Hmm. Um, so that was really, uh, but it wasn't just Paul's band also. I mean, it was Linda. You know, the reason for Wings to even exist was because Paul wanted to work with Linda, which is why he would never do Wings again after Linda had passed. Hmm. He said very specifically, you know, that it just wouldn't work for him. And I understand that. Um, but it was very much, it felt like a band. And, you know, and there wasn't a lot of touring going on, you know, by that time, by that point in the, the 70s, they had moved out of London, they had got the kids settled in school, they, you know, Linda didn't want to do another world tour. She, you know, she was, now she has four kids to deal with, including baby James, and, and it was, it was getting to be Know, a lot for her and so and you can see you know it really was kind of i look at it as the indian summer of wings it was kind of like you know the last the last phase of it uh, and it, as i say for me you know it was all a gift 
just the opportunity to work with Paul to to get that kind of an education, you know, from McCartney University, as it were. Um, and so, but it was all those things, you know. I mean, it's like the Beatles were a, a pop group, a rock group, a folk group. You know, they were everything. Mm. And and Wings, you know, had its phases and it had its its facets. Um, and so I enjoyed it as being in a band. But at the same time, so he was time, still writing the checks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, after the UK tour, there were plans, of course, to play in Japan. And I would imagine to play the US to go beyond that. Well, more than plans to play in Japan. I mean, we were there. I, I was, know that. But I, was <laughs> I was standing here and he was there when they when, right. you know, when half an ounce, half a pound of uh, weed, you know, mm. suddenly materialized, materialized in a suitcase. Um, so that, you know, that really kind of put a crimp in the touring plans because I imagine that we we may very well have done some U.S. states, and that would have coincided with having a number one record. You know, so that was kind of a shame that it went that way. But it also, I think, was kind of indicative of the fact that there was just this, they couldn't be, Paul and Linda couldn't be living the same rock and roll lifestyle that they'd been living five years earlier. Hmm. It was just a different, it was... The, the times were changing to you know quote Dylan you know we were moving out of the 70s into the 80s and when we did the Campuchia concert for example you had this wonderful mix of you had the Who and Queen and and, and Wings you know very much representing the 70s but then you had the Pretenders mm -hmm. you know for example and, and Elvis Costello and it was it was a kind of a changing of the guard in a way Interesting. yeah, yeah. Um how do you think Paul felt doing that UK tour? Do you think that he, was there anything that maybe you observed that maybe he felt this might be the end of the road for Wings? Was he going through the motions or was he really excited about I, the tour? I, I, I don't think he was going through the motions because musically, I mean, mm. he was singing great. Mm. His bass playing, especially using the Yamaha bass, which he had you know, been given shortly before that tour, well, actually, before we, right before we did the videos, um, his bass playing is extremely robust. And, you know, it was a very solid, the core of the band was really solid. Mm. Um, but I think that it was, it was just, you know, it was starting to become just not compatible with the kind of lifestyle and, and the kind of direction, you know, Wings, our Wings really at his best was a rock band. But Paul's busy writing, you know, average person, <laughs> you know, um, and, and songs like that. So when we came later on in 1980, when we came to start rehearsing the tug of war material, you know, which from my perspective was were songs that would have been better worked out in a studio environment rather than in a rehearsal hall, because they needed those kind of, like, whether it would be an acoustic guitar texture or, or something stuff that that comes easily in the studio but you're really just kind of you're just kind of discussing when you're you know when you're in a in that kind of environment and so it was really there was a divergence and and clearly paul's heart was with the family and with linda and with the kind of pop direction and of course you know again having this this big record deal with columbia which was a very valuable deal for him because part of it was he got the cbs songs catalog 
Mm -hmm. So he got Grease, Chorus Line and Annie, all of which got made in movies into movies within a year of him getting that catalog. You know? So, nice. you know, the business hat yeah. was an important factor there. So, you know, it was just it, it just Wings had really just kind of run, run its course creatively because of the direction that he was going. In. And, and I saw the writing on the wall there. So I was already making plans to move to New York. Hmm which I did right after we, we did the last wing sessions in January of 81, um, where we worked on, um, um, for example, they, they did a remix of Same Time Next Year. We did, what was it, Love For You. Mm -hmm. I put some slide guitar on that. And, you know, there were a number of like, quote, cold cuts that we, right. were, we, were, we were working on. And then I moved to New York. Actually, it was a shame. There were two things that, two occasions when um, Tony Visconti had called me in December of 79, saying, oh, you want to come to Switzerland and do a record with Rick Wakeman over New Year's? Hmm. And so I went to Paul and said, you know, do you mind if I do this? And he said, no, go ahead. And then the next day he said, well, you know, I really want this to kind of be perceived as a band. So you shouldn't really be doing that kind of studio mm -hmm. work. So that was good. And then the day I was, as I was getting ready to leave, I went to visit them at air and there's a phone call for me from tony visconti i'm doing a mary hopkin record you want to come play on it <laughs> sorry tony <laughs> so um because i did sessions for him in london you know in my session work days um but i moved to new york and i'd only been there a couple of months when i met hope i mean wings officially folded april 27th of 81 and i met hope april 28th so there you go yeah, it was destiny. <laughs> One of the most popular bootlegs out there is the Last Flight bootleg. Mm -hmm. And from what I remember, Jeff Emmerich was asked to, to mix it. Well, so Jeff were... recorded it, too. Oh, okay. Yeah. So why didn't that end up getting released at the time, do you know? Um, I think, you know, it, it could have been, it could have been part of the, the Columbia deal. Hmm. But I think that, you know, from my perspective, I mean, we were just getting going, you know, I mean, that was the last night of the tour and we did have a release. I mean, coming up came from mm, that same concert. Sure. Um, I think that, that, that we were changing the repertoire for Japan. So there would have been Live and Let Die, Another Day, which had been a big hit in Japan. Um, let them in, you know, there were some changes, we were swapping tunes out. And I think that had we continued to tour, there would have been more live recording and a, and a, a live album potentially culled from that. Hmm. But I, I just, for me, it was, you know, I mean, it, it's cool stuff, you know, it's cool recordings. And I, I think the version of Goodnight Tonight on that is particularly good. As it, and his vocal on Old Siam, Sir, I think is better than the one on Back to the Egg. Hmm. And his right at the very top of his range. I mean, it's not like he was, he was not putting, you know, heart and soul into it and, and calluses and everything else. You know, it was all really, um, he was in, in a very good musical space there. Yeah. Did the band have anything to do with, with the selection of material live? Because the 79 tour, he's actually starting to bring back more Beatles songs instead of just the five during Wings Over America. Yeah. Um, we did actually, at one point, we looked at things we said today, uh, but that didn't make the list. We also, I mean, we, we played around with, um, with a little luck, mm -hmm. but it just didn't fit. Again, because the band had more of a rock edge to it. Okay. Um, and 
you know, that was, you know, that was theaters. I mean, the, we did, you know, Wembley Arena, we did what, three, four nights, I forget how many we did there. So, mm. you know, we we're playing for large and small audiences in that, um, on that tour. And I think that that it kind of got distilled down to that particular list. But, you know, we opened with Got to Get You Into My Life. Right. But I think that what part of the motivation for that was that Earth, Wind and Fire had had a hit with it. Uh, right. and, and Paul wanted to kind of, you know, I think, you know, kind of, yeah, it's my tune. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, you also did, um, well, you did Fool on the Hill. And we did Fool on the Hill. Let It Be, which ironically wasn't done in the World Wings uh, Over right. America tour. Yeah, no, and, you know, that, that one was particularly, is particularly dear to my heart because I really, I got an opportunity to do my own solo on that. Right. Because it wasn't like there was the definitive Beatles solo. Mm. okay yeah. one more question um do you think that wings well you, you kind of answer this question should wings be put into the rock and roll hall of fame as an entity to itself i know paul's already in there for post beatles work but do you think that that's a mistake <laughs> and should be kept separate oh i don't know i'll have to ask Steve Still Paul's aware of that Paul's here, right? <laughs> <laughs> i played with him last week uh -huh. so, yeah. But, you know, I mean, Steve has his opinions about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes, yeah. we know. But um, <laughs> I think that, I mean, it would be lovely were that the case. And certainly Wings had its own identity, separate from the Beatles and separate from Paul's later work. Mm -hmm. So there would be some justification for it. But there's a very long list of very worthy artists that aren't in the Rock and Roll Hall yeah, of Fame. Sure. And some that, you know, maybe aren't really rock and roll at all that are in. So, you know, they make their decisions, I, I guess, on that, you know, whatever. But it would be really an interesting thing if we did get it. Yeah. yeah. Well, that would be lovely. <laughs> a lot of fans find a big distinction between Wings and the solo music. Yeah. So certainly uh, more know. presence from Linda vocally. Well, and of course, true. you know, yeah. Denny Lane all throughout the whole history. Yeah. You know, and the fourth and fifth. But members. Denny's in there with the Moody's. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know, it's it's. I mean, when you really start getting into the the granular detail of the history of rock, I mean, is is like Burt Burns in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? No. Is Phil Spector in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Yes. Well, how come Phil Spector's <laughs> in and Burt Burns isn't? When Burt Burns was more influential than Phil Spector, for example. You know, and so there's. I think there's some still. You know, there, there's there's niches that have to be filled, and wings certainly would would be worthy. But I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> okay. Um, going back to to back to the egg, um, I I I'm sure I speak for everybody in here who you know saying that you know we love the album, and you know as we all know when it first came out, I mean it did well. I mean it was a top ten album. But, um, you know, critics weren't, you know, were more divided on it. But over the years, I think a lot of people have come around on it. And, and we certainly all appreciate it. Why do you think uh, that uh, Back to the Egg is, has grown in stature over, over time? Why, why do you think? Because it's a good album. Well, that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> And you can't always trust critics. Yeah. You know? mm -hmm. um, and yes, it was not 
that well received by the critics yeah. at the time, but the fans loved it. Mm -hmm. I think commercially it, it would have benefited from Good Night Tonight being on it because I that agree. was the hit. I agree. Um, and I think that was a little bit to the record label's chagrin that Paul wouldn't put it on, on the album. Mm -hmm. but, it, but it's a good album and it holds up. And that's the thing that I find interesting because, you know, the, the, in making records, from my experience, there's something that I refer to as shelf life. Mm -hmm. You know, when you make a record and then it sounds great at the time, and then like a year later, it's like maybe it's not as you know quite what I thought it was then. <laughs> not necessarily referring to my own stuff, of course. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but but I think Wing that album, Back to the Egg, has you know has really held up. Mm -hmm. And it, to me, listening to it, you know, as I do once in a while when I, you know, I need to refresh my memory about yeah. something, it still sounds fresh, mm -hmm. um, which is quite remarkable mm -hmm. um, because, you know, and, you know, in the digital era, you know, it was very much an analog record. Mm -hmm. um, one of the last records really that was purely analog out of Paul's catalog, because I think that by the time they got into doing some of the early 80s stuff, they were already working in digital form. Right, Because right. mm -hmm. um, it, it has that analog kind of warmth to it. And, mm -hmm. and I think that the songwriting is interesting. It's, you know, I, I've always, I always wondered about the My Salamander line. Yeah. <laughs> and then I realized that a salamander is actually, there are multiple meanings to it. Mm -hmm. And a salamander is like those kind of like little, um, bursts of flame that you get in a fire. They're called salamanders. And it has something to do with Linda being referred to as a salamander in, in her wow. youth. So um, I think, you know, people kind of sometimes get the wrong idea yeah. about things. <laughs> but, um, you know, an album that has Rockestra and Baby's Request and To You on it mm -hmm. is, you know, kind of stylistically is not easily pigeonholed. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I think that 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 made a difference too. Also, I mean, just from strictly from a business point of view, it took a long time for Capitol Records to really understand how to market Wings. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it was only because an edited version of Jet was released to radio that Band on the Run really started to get its real traction. Yeah. And I think that Columbia didn't, they, they just, I think there was an assumption that Paul would be self-marketing in that respect. Yeah. Yeah. You also are coming out, it came out on the back of Rumors, Saturday Night Fever, albums that were selling huge quantities. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, pretty much the week that Back to the Egg came out, the US economy went slammed into a recession. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of factors involved, mm -hmm. but it was still a successful album. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was still a platinum record. Mm -hmm. And this, at least, you know, Good Night Tonight was a, a top 10 single. Yeah. The, the, the singles that were d drawn from the album, I think that um, in particular, um, uh, Arrow Through Me was, Love that. you know, and that could have, I mean, that, that song could have been produced in a more Wings-like way, as opposed to, in a sense, kind of looking forward to McCartney too, by being a stripped down as it was but i remember being at abbey road and paul simon came in to listen and he just kind of stood there aghast at how big the bottom end was when there was no bass on that there's no bass on that track it's no, just the true. left hand of a fender rose wow. so you know less true. is more yeah, in that kind yeah. Of so and that 
tune in particular is very popular. Um, I love it. Yeah. You know, my our daughter Ilse is a songwriter, mm -hmm. Grammy nominated songwriter. And fingers crossed for tomorrow. And um, <laughs> you know, she's walked into writing sessions where there are you know songwriters listening to Back to the Egg and that track in particular because it's become quite iconic. In fact, Erica Badu, yes. you know, did, I, I didn't know until I got a check, reuse check from the Musicians Union, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. she used the intro as a, as a, a loop for, yeah. for a recording. Yeah, so mm -hmm. um, I think that there are, there are aspects to, to all of that that, you know, still resonate. Mm -hmm. and, and that's gratifying mm -hmm. to me because it was good work. We do good work and, and it is appreciated certainly by the fans and it seems to come up as one of the top three Wings albums. So thank you very much. Absolutely right. <laughs> here, here. And thank you for addressing the salamander thing. So um, good night tonight and salamander, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah, let's talk about your, your offering new music here while you're at the fest. Let's talk about what you got. I am. Well, I've got two albums because okay. my uh, the Fab Fourth, which right. is my fourth album of solo acoustic Beatle arrangements, uh, was due to be debuted at the Beatle Fest that was two years ago, two, two years ago, yeah, yeah. 2020. Yeah, uh, which never happened. Right. So right. so that's really kind of fresh. Right. Um, but also during lockdown, I started doing what I call tea time with LJ, yes. uh, which initially was five days a week. Mm -hmm. Actually, sometimes more because right. you know sometimes there'd be a Sunday Beatle Fest thing right. or something. But but I, I distilled it down to three days a week: Moody Monday, Workshop Wednesday, and Fingerbuster Friday. <laughs> occasionally Fab Friday. Right. Um, and I would dig deep into my own repertoire. I would do arrangement. You know, play arrangements of Beatle tunes or you know anything that was kind of in the repertoire but also if it was a particular birthday mm -hmm. if it was a certain songwriter's birthday right. or um uh when uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away and I discovered that she was a huge opera fan mm -hmm. I did an arrangement of Puccini's Nissan Dorma ah. you know which was really a challenge I right. mean but but I, I was a, an opportunity for me to really kind of push myself. Right. And it became kind of a full-time job because, right. you know, coming up with 30 minutes of material three times right. a week with stuff that right. I maybe hadn't played at all before. Right. I mean, the first cut on, on the album, which I've distilled from that, which is called Select Blends, mm. you know, as in kind of blends of tea. Mm. Um, <laughs> the, the first cut is Within You, Without You. Mm. which I uh, had only played twice, once on a Beatles fest mm -hmm. uh, celebration for George. I think it was for George. Oh, it might have been, yeah, for George, that's right. And then, no, the one, the one I, that's on the album was for okay. George's birthday, and mm -hmm. I'd done it prior to that. But um, that was just something that it was just kind of a personal challenge, right. you know, to find a way of making that work as, as a solo acoustic guitar mm -hmm. piece. And so half the album is covers, half of them is, uh, half of it is... Uh, originals mm -hmm. i did pleasant valley sunday because it was carol king's birthday uh -huh. and 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 i'm a monkeys fan and i i'm friends with mickey so mm -hmm. that was kind of and it's a very cool tune right um but i didn't realize that the that cool guitar lick that it starts off with was actually mike nesmith mm -hmm. i thought it was one of the, the wrecking crew guys like right. louis shelton but it was actually mike nesmith right. um so 
that's what it's what I call a virtually live album because right. it was live, mm-hmm. but there were no people. It was not in you know in in computer parlance meat space. It was right. cyberspace. Mm. So there was an audience, but they weren't in the room. Right. So both of those you're you're presenting here for fans yeah. to buy this week. Yeah, and if you get the select blends, you also get a little tea time with LJ Pin. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I, I'm sure I can say for everyone, but during that whole pandemic while you're playing live, I mean, it was really just uh, like refreshing and just, you know, seeing people out there performing for people that were stuck at home. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was really a great gesture on your part and really appreciate doing, you doing well, that. It, it's, thank you. And it, it just felt necessary. Right. You know, I wasn't just going to sit at home and, and right. you know, do nothing. Right. You know, and, <laughs> and it was just the motivation to play and then to also wrestle with the technology Mm -hmm. to, you know, figure out how to get the best sound and the best video and, and, and which platform to use. And I, in the course of it, I did a few things on Bandcamp, Mm. which, you know, I can actually make money doing it on Bandcamp because you can charge for tickets Ah. on Facebook. You know, people can give you stars, but you know, it's like, it's not that effective. Um, but, but uh, in Facebook, for all of its faults, as a so, uh, for the social interaction of it, that you can, you know, somebody posts a comment, somebody can respond to that comment, like within the nesting of mm-hmm. the comment, whereas on Bandcamp or YouTube, it's very one dimensional. Okay. Um, I did look at Twitch, right. and it didn't quite, didn't quite work for me, mm-hmm. but I still have a Twitch page. Gotcha. Um, and that actually could relate to the fact that I've composed for video games mm. in right. the past right. but but yeah that's a bridge too far i mean right. i really for me the focus is on my repertoire and my following as my cyber following right cool yeah awesome well thank you for being here anybody else any more questions uh, we take questions from the audience sure. anyone have any questions for lawrence well <laughs> well let me okay right here Favorite memory of the 79 tour is actually my favorite memory is when we were doing the Campuchia concert. And at the end of our wing set, we had the whole orchestra on stage. And we did Lucille and we did orchestra theme and we did Let It Be. And I'm on stage with Pete Townsend and you know all, all these luminaries, you know, rock royalty. And it comes to the solo. And I look around and nobody's going to step forward. So I, you know, and I was used to doing it. So I get to step forward and I'm on stage with all these people. And I'm on stage with Paul McCartney playing Let It Be. And I'm in, you know, kind of guitarist's heaven. And then I smell brandy fumes. (laughs) (laughs) And there's there's Pete Townsend kind of, uh, you know, leering over my shoulder. So to pay him back, you know, at the end of the, the set, I put the top hat on him and he just threw it out into the audience because he wouldn't wear the, the silver lame jackets that we had. Um, that's my favorite memory of all of that. Um, but before I finish, I want to just bring up um, a couple of things. Uh, you know, our daughter Ilse is a songwriter. She's nominated for two Grammys right now. She's, she has a co-write with Little Nas X and Elton John from the Little Nas X album. But more importantly, she wrote all my favorite songs for Weezer, which is nominated in the best rock song category. And her competition is Paul McCartney. <laughs> Paul found that amusing. Um, and then, our, and she also wrote um, 
Panic at the Disco's High Hopes is one of hers. Uh, Shawn Mendes' Mercy. Uh, she wrote the last two songs that uh, Chester sang with Lincoln Park, recorded with Lincoln Park. Um, she really has done remarkably well. And if you go to Ilse, just Google I-L-S-E-Y, Ilse, and her Wikipedia page has you know, a lengthy discography. In fact, on Spotify, they have these written by playlists. Mm. And I went to, I accidentally stumbled upon her written by playlist. 15 minutes later, I'm still scrolling through it because she's done so much stuff. Miley Cyrus, she wrote Nothing Breaks Like a Heart. But the cool thing was when Miley did that with Mark Ronson on Saturday Night Live, the second song that they did, because it was a Christmas show, was, was um, Happy Christmas, War is Over with Sean Lennon. So she got to work with Sean. How cool is that? Yeah. Um, and then our, our eldest daughter, Nico, is quit her corporate job a couple of years ago and wrote a musical, which she just did a reading of in New York a couple of days ago, doing a performance at 54 below, Feinstein's 54 Below on Monday night. And so our kids are, are creatives. And then Hope and I work together. She produces my records. I wouldn't have done the Beatle albums were it not for her insisting mm. that I do. <laughs> Um, and we have, we're in development on a very Brady musical, Brady Bunch musical, yeah. which she co-wrote the book with her brother Lloyd, and then we wrote the score together. Um, and she had a, a comedy rock and roll band called The Housewives back in the day. And then um, after the, um, the last, the, the Trump election, uh, she turned it political and put together The Nasty Housewives. Um, with our friend Marcy Levy, who wrote Lay Down Sally with Eric Clapton, she's in that. So, you know, you can, and there are videos of that whole album. If you go to thenastyhousewives.com, make sure you put the the in. And, you know, we, we live the life of creatives. I mean, uh, after Wings, I became a studio musician again in LA and played on hundreds, thousands of TV shows Home Improvement, Roseanne. 11 years of a show called Seventh Heaven. Very prominent acoustic guitar on that. In fact, I'm just getting ready with Dan Folliot, who was a composer of that show. We're gonna be releasing an album of music from that because there's some really, really cool stuff on it. And um, it's, it's just a good listen, you know. Um, and then um, I started putting out these solo acoustic records. And I think like the latest one may be number 30. I lost count. And somewhere along the way, I produced four albums for Al Stewart and toured with him. Right now, the, this week's project, um, I have a, a friend, T -Bear, Richard T. Bear, who's a songwriter, kind of in the kind of Leon Russell, Dr. John kind of area. And we've been gigging around LA. In fact, for a while, we had Denny Sywell playing drums with us. Uh, now, Tony Braunigal, who's Blues Drummer of the Year, Taj Mahal's producer. He and I just produced a record called Red Harvest, which is um, about what's going on in Ukraine. And it's going to be, you know, kind of a charity fundraising release. And we just, that was mastered yesterday. And so that should be out within a few weeks. Uh, a very interesting song. And Richard has amazingly, because he was also starting to do... Um, Kind of Facebook Live stuff called the Bear Cave is his one on Facebook, and somehow 
in this kind of crucible of, of being forced to be self-reliant, he has gone into this really amazing kind of area of writing really compelling lyrics. And so we've just, we're putting an album together around his work. So that's kind of an ongoing project. And then I've got a whole bunch of material I want to record for another solo record and just, you know, playing a lot more electric guitar. Now I do also, and you'll hear, you know, at the fest tonight, some of my, my revisiting the Wings repertoire. Um, I do, but what, Paul won't let us use the name Wings, you know, just to avoid confusion. So it, I call it Airfoil. <laughs> and I, I've done a few, we did uh, Abbey Road on the River and I, I worked with Peter Asher's band doing that, you know, Jeff Allen Ross and that, they, they know all the tunes. So you know, it makes it easy. We don't have to rehearse very much. <laughs> I have a few copies of my book, Guitar with Wings, and that's all the pictures I took during the Back to the Egg sessions and around that period. And it's my biography too. So yeah, so there you go. One more thing about Ilse, didn't she co-write a few songs with Harry Styles? Oh yeah, she wrote um, Treat People with Kindness off the fine line album, which I played on. You know, phone rings. <laughs> Daddy, uh, what are you doing this afternoon? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm free. So, well, we need, we need guitar. So, and, you know, Harry Styles is a big Wings fan and, and a big fan of Back yeah. to the Egg too. Um, and so I went to um, uh, East West Studios and uh, Jeff Basket was the producer and played, you know, kind of almost like a coming up type rhythm part on it. You know, but all that guitar on that record is me. So, and they did a really cool video to it as well. So very exciting. Not often that I get to work on something that else has written. You know, there was a JLo track very early on in her career that I played on, but this was, you know, this was a union gig too. So yeah. can't complain about that. <laughs> and Harry's also uh, performed Wonderful Christmas Time. I, I imagine so. Yeah, because he's yeah. you know, just a fan of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but you know, that's how it goes, you know, because there's this generations, you know, generations of musicians that grew up listening to, mm. to Back to the Egg. And, you know, for some people, I mean, people have told me that's how they got to the Beatles, right. was through Paul, through Back to the Egg. And, you know, yeah. so we bring this up all the time. A lot of people were exposed to the Beatles first from their solo music. Yeah. 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 So there you go. So this is one very talented family, the Juber family. Apart from all the great music that they've done, we should also say a very happy 40th anniversary to Thank Hope you. and Lawrence a few days ago. And I guess we should just wrap it up. Yep. Lawrence, this has been tremendous. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Talk.